This is the fifth episode in an ongoing series. This series discusses murder and crime scenes. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. Susie Walker Quinn was a well-known and well-respected woman in Macon County, Georgia. She had family and friends all over the towns of Montezuma and Butler and Oglethorpe. Despite having her children while she was still in high school, she graduated in what Cold Case Project describes as the top 10% of her class. And her children, Ricardo and Clarissa, tell us that she had many friends. She was even close with the local sheriff's wife. She and her husband worked hard to make a good life for their children in Macon County, a place where Susie's own family had deep roots. Her husband, Adele, had opened up a busy gas station frequented by locals called Quinn Service Station. As for herself, Susie worked for two different local companies and as a sought-after seamstress. Susie had plenty of supportive family in Montezuma, where she'd settled with her own family, as well as nearby in Oglethorpe and the surrounding area, where other members of her family resided. She was actually living in Oglethorpe, temporarily, at the time of her death. Those connections were why, when we heard of her case, it struck us that there was so little available information. Because Susie Quinn was someone people paid attention to. According to what her now adult children remember, her graveside service was well attended when her funeral was held. Prominent people spoke at the service. But all we could find on her murder were two short paragraphs published a few days apart in July of 1986. One article came out before she was identified, and one after. It's a scant footprint. Of course, we don't have access to the television news footage that may have run around that time. Her children, Ricardo and Clarissa, remember there was that too. And it's possible there are other news sources that we simply can't find. But even today, as far as we've been able to discover, her case has not been revisited by the media, except for Florida's Project Cold case, which works directly with families to help spotlight their loved ones. It's been 37 years since Susie Quinn's murder, since she was found, as the Macon Telegraph wrote, quote, on a country road off Georgia 128 in Oglethorpe. Susie had only been living in that part of Macon County on her family's property for a little while. She'd had to relocate herself and her children after a house fire. She and her husband were separated at that time, but they still saw each other regularly. And Ricardo and Clarissa tell us, they were close to reconciliation. And, though they'd moved, Oglethorpe was familiar territory, and both sides of the family saw each other all the time. Things felt mostly normal. Her family never imagined, that summer, that Susie Quinn was in danger. But, when she went out with a friend on Friday, July 25th, and failed to return home, something had to be wrong. Susie was not going to just disappear. Her whole life was wrapped up in her family, in her children. She had work, her church, her mother, her aging uncles, so many people who counted on her. It was early that Sunday morning when two teenagers came upon a woman's body on a dirt road. They had no idea who she was, 
but the earliest reports noted that she was thought to be between 25 and 35 years old. She had no identification on her person, and, as the Telegraph noted, quote, she had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and body. The paper described her as wearing, quote, a blue and white plaid blouse, a khaki-colored short skirt, hair rollers, and an engagement ring. That article, published July 28th, described law enforcement as having no idea as to her identity. Quote, We're out of leads, the Macon County Sheriff told reporters. But, by the next day, in the final article on her case, the Telegraph confirmed it. The victim was Susie Quinn. It's never noted whether the sheriff himself recognized her, not in the papers. After all, as Susie's children told us, his wife was her friend. Her body was dumped on a back road, just a few miles from her temporary home in Oglethorpe, in a place where she had roots. She left behind a husband, with whom she'd been repairing a strained marriage, and two children, only 10 and 12 at the time of her death, and a large extended family, all torn apart, and they still have not been repaired. Her children are successful, a doctorate for her son Ricardo, who went on to study education and then become a school principal, and an extensive military career for her daughter Clarissa. But the shadow has hung there. It hung over their father too, who was always suspected in Susie's death. After all, they had been separated at the time of her murder. Clarissa tells us that her father was eventually cleared, definitively, but that news came too late for his peace of mind. Almost everything we have to tell you about Susie Quinn's life and death is because her children have made sure it's available to us. So the caveat here is that the story we're sharing is based on their impressions and their memories. We cannot cross-check the information with the media because there isn't any. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation declined to participate in this episode, citing new developments in their investigation, and our FOIA request for Oglethorpe's original records was not fulfilled due to a stated backlog. So, we have precious little detail about what happened, in an investigative sense, in the case of Susie Quinn. But there is something that we do have, something her daughter Clarissa has discovered in her own search for answers over the last decades, something that could definitively close her mother's case. Susie Quinn, originally Susie Lee Walker, was born on June 6, 1958. Her son Ricardo tells us that he remembers his grandmother's stories about his mother's upbringing, that she'd been a joyful child. She was able to grow up among multiple generations of her family on their own land. She had two brothers. Her mother was alive, her grandmother was alive, and her great-grandmother was alive. And so even my childhood, those same people were still alive. I had my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother. They lived on a farm. You found cows, hogs, chickens all kinds of things on this land that my family owned over, over in Oglethorpe, Georgia. And my grandmother, my mom's mom, was one of the first African-American women to purchase a home in Butler, Georgia. And they also had land over in Oglethorpe. 
Georgia that will later become where we move and, and, and where she would later meet her demise uh, there in that same town. She would travel quite a bit with my uh, grandmother and her father to places like Connecticut. And I think that's where my mom lost her father in Connecticut and they moved back to Butler, Georgia. Susie was a good student. She attended D.F. Douglas High School in Montezuma. While in high school, she met Ricardo and Clarissa's father, Adele Quinn, who she would go on to marry. It was at Douglas that Susie was able to hone her crafting, art, and sewing skills. My mom really had a unique skill and craft, and she really learned that skill while taking home economics at um, D.F. Douglas High School. She graduated from there in 1976, which was the year I was born. She was in the top 10% of her class. I still have pictures of her standing with her classmates as, you know, as an honor graduate. She was a seamstress by uh, trade, could make anything. She would make my clothes, she would make my sister clothes, make the neighborhood folks clothes. She would make Cabbage Patch dolls from like scratch for African-American girls in the neighborhood. She was very good friends with the uh, sheriff's wife and who owned the store downtown Montezuma. They would get together and make pottery out of ceramic and, and really sell them. In addition to her clothing design and crafting, Susie also worked full-time to support her young family. Her new husband, Adele, had similar plans, to work hard to provide for them all. They settled close to much of their family in Montezuma. My dad ended up um, dropping out as a 10th grader. When my mom graduated, their families made them get married because they had kids. <laughs> and so she went to work at Southern Frozen Food, which was a freezing plant in Montezuma, Georgia, which was located right behind my dad's mother's home. And so I saw my family every single day because we all live on the same street. I was always there with my mom, my dad, my cousins, have plenty of cousins, aunts and uncles. And we were all just there. It was truly, I would say, a village. My dad would go on to purchase a gas station in Montezuma called Quinn Service Station. And, and of course, it would be where people would come and get their gas and get their cars fixed and so a very busy place. My mom would come help my dad out, you know, when she was not working. And we would all just help him out there. Until she died, he had to let it go because he had to take care of two children. I think my dad's demonstration of love was through the buying me of things. Like he told me how to ride a bike. He bought me a go-kart, told me how to ride that. So when it came to like my needs and wants, I really didn't have any because they made sure they were met. So I think that's how he demonstrated his love for his children. Susie, though, she was more expressive in all ways. She was creative and known for her flair. I remember my mom being very well-liked by those that she had come into contact with. She was just amazing and could dress. Oh, my goodness. She would, if I can show you pictures of her, she would have, like, these roses in her hair. Or she'd make her, little, make her own clothes and everything matched. She was a great cook, too. Oh, my God. She was an amazing, amazing cook. She wanted uh, what was best for her children, too. We had a very structured home in terms of systems and process. When I got home, I, I immediately went to the table, started my, my homework, wait for my mom to get off of work. She would come start cooking. She would be sitting to the right of me as I'm doing my homework, help me out, or she would be at the sewing machine sewing. She would be doing something. She loved music and could sing. 
and we had this record player in our home and she would play a lot of blues and we would just sing and just dance and my dad and her would play pranks on each other. It was just, a, you know, it was, a, it was a good home. She also was a gardener. If you came into our yard, there were trees, there were roses. And I know it seemed like a fairy tale, you know, but it's just how I remember it. My sister probably would say that she's a daddy's girl. I'd probably say I'm a mama's boy because while I think we spent a lot of time with my mom, I think I spent a lot more time with her. I think because I was the youngest too. And I think there's this thing where the mother are very close to their sons, but she just really took good care of me. And uh, really, for me, cl- being clean, being dressed, and that's, that's me. I love to be dressed. <laughs> so I got that from her. Being cognizant about your appearance, being cognizant about my work ethic. She would go to church. She was a church-going woman, you know. She would make sure I was there <laughs> all the time. So that part, I think I got from her. I would also say just courage. Clarissa, Ricardo's older sister, agrees. She recalls their home as orderly and disciplined, but very loving and safe. We had a nice upbringing. Most people would say my brother and I was privileged because, I mean, the discipline was there, but we we had the ultimate childhood upbringing. It was pleasant. It was enjoyable. It was always education and no, don't, you never disrespect your elders. It was always yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And you, the one thing you must do, you will do, you will get an education. That was something that was instilled in us. Our house was like the house where all kids would come, but they know that if they got out of line or whatever, they know that they would, so to speak, be put in the check or whatever. And they moms would know it. Everybody in the neighborhood knew my mom. And they knew that when their when they child came to my mom's house, they knew that they didn't have to worry about anything. Because Susie had work and sewing and crafting, church and family, and her own house to run, Ricardo says that he wonders now, as an adult himself, how she managed everything. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would, I would wonder, now thinking back uh, so many years now, again, going back to those systems in our house, like there was homework, eating, a little bit of TV time, and bedtime. Because it was early morning, rising for her and for for my dad. I, our clothes were laid out the, day, <laughs> the night before. I mean, everything was just laid out. And I think I get that from her because my, my clothes are laid out before I get up in the morning, too, before I go to bed. But yeah, she she just did those kinds of things. But she loved to have fun too, because on the weekends, her friends and my and my aunts they would play cards. Of course, we were never invited to be around the card table, because that was grown folks' business. Ricardo said that Susie also attended all their school activities, kept scrapbooks filled with their childhood achievements, and kept up with another hobby that she especially loved: gardening. It was actually that activity that was tied directly to the fire that destroyed their Montezuma home in the months before she died. She was burning leaves and there was a high wind that came and the wind kind of swept itself underneath our house that we lived in at the time and really just uh, it burned, burned down, which caused us to move to the family land over in Ogilfart. But that was not the only reason for their move. 
In the later years of Susie and Adele's marriage, there had been tension surrounding infidelity. Of course, the children did not understand everything at that time, but have gained more understanding through the years. The move and the estrangement are vital to understanding Susie's case, even though she and her husband were on the way to reconciling when she was murdered. Were there arguments with my mom and my dad? Yeah, yeah. There were times where it would get heated, and I, ha- I would have to go get my uncle or my aunt to come over and kind of squash things. But my dad and my mom would try to make it right. I think leaving your high school sweetheart for a betterment, like in terms of leaving my dad for the moment that she left him, uh, and saying, hey, I'm not going to divorce this guy, but I'm going to separate from him a while, and then I'm going to come back to him, if that's the case. I think it takes a lot of courage. I think it takes a lot of faith to be able to walk away from something for a while and, and work on it collectively for the betterment of, of what you have. I think I'm that kind of person, too. I dare not walk away from something without having communication or some type of closure, you know. And at the center of it, I know was this lady that my dad was actually like seeing. And my mom would bring it to my dad's attention quite a bit. You know, there was an infidelity there that my mom would come to find out. And I think in most cases, the fights would come as a result of some type of interaction or conversation regarding this lady. And it's crazy because this same lady was <laughs> uh, at the same high school. They were friends in the circle kind of growing up. And I think the last struggle with the camera's back was there was a physical altercation. My mom had really had enough. And at the time, like I loved my dad, but my mom was my everything. Susie and Adele separated. And after the fire, she moved her children to her family's property in nearby Oglethorpe. But they still saw their father and extended family all the time. Childcare and school and helping out at the gas station meant that their lives were interwoven. And more than that, Adele wanted his family back. My dad, he was a very attractive guy. Ladies talked to a very attractive guy. His mom would talk to him about his actions. His brothers would talk to him about his actions. And he started coming around. When that's what happened, he realized that, hey, I'm probably going to be losing my children. She put up with a lot of stuff you know, from my dad, because he could be very complex. So did you get the sense that when your mom decided to leave, she was giving your dad a chance to think about whether he wanted to save his marriage and his family? Yes, I do believe that. There will be times where she would bring us over to kind of um, see him, and their conversation had changed. Like the way he would approach her, the way that she would approach him, that would be smiling and kind of laughing. There would be just a different type of communication that I had previously seen. Do you remember how long they were separated? If I had to make a, a guess, I'm thinking about a year or so. And you and your sister were both living with her at the time? Mm-hmm. Yep. My sister, I don't know if she remembered this. She, she wouldn't like going, because where our new house was, it was, right on our family's property that I was telling you about earlier where the farmland was. And now I grew to like it a little bit because my mom was there. Staying out on that stretch of farmland was not ideal, for the kids at least, but they managed. And they hoped that their parents would get back together as long as their mother was happy. Clarissa told us that 
at least for her, she often felt that the separation wasn't quite real. I don't know. I don't. I don't know because to me, it was kind of like they they wasn't really separated because we lived. I mean, where he went to his mom's house was like across the street. So it was kind of like he was there and he wasn't there. He was there. I mean, we always had access to my dad and he always had access to us. And even though they were separated, he came to the house whenever he wanted to or whatever. We go to his house until our trailer burned down. That, I mean, that was it. And then once, once she got a trailer and moved to Oglethorpe, I was like, yeah, they separated. But in my mind, it's like, it wasn't because he was still there, if you, if you understand what I'm saying. But while their parents weren't together, their mother had developed a friendship with a man. The kids did not know much about him. They'd met him. He came to the Oglethorpe house to visit, but he was not a part of their lives. They were focused on their father and their own issues. My brother and I, we didn't really, like, interact with him. You know what I mean? We, like, Knew, we knew him, and we saw him, and that was it. According to Clarissa and Ricardo, this man is the friend that is mentioned in discussions of Susie's case. The friend that Project Cold Case cites in their reporting as having plans with her on Friday, July 25th. That was the night that she dropped her children off with Adele and promised to pick them up in the morning. But I do know the night leading up to her murder... I remember me being there with my mom. I knew that she was planning on going out with, like, with him. I actually told her that, that I didn't want to go to my grandmother's house to stay with my dad. I wanted to stay there with her. And she told me, she said, well, I'll, I'll come back and get you. I'll come back and get you. Did you stay with your grandparents the night that your mom went out? Yes. My dad lived with my uh, grandmother, which we all live on the same street prior to our house burning down. And so in the house burn, my dad had to live with, with his mom because they were separated. And so my mom brought me over to my grandmother's house to stay with my dad. And uh, of course, she would never come back to get me, but I do remember her indicating that she was going out with this person. Of course, Susie never came for her children not on Saturday morning or later that night. And though her family was worried, they had no way of easily tracking her down, not back in 1986. The Macon Telegraph reported that they officially filed a missing persons report on Sunday, July 27th. That call is what would allow authorities to identify Susie's body, which had been discovered early that morning on the country road. Her family had actually heard rumors about a murder but they had not made a connection. It seems so strange because my mom had yet to come back to uh, get me, but we had been hearing uh, rumors and then also on the news that a Caucasian woman had been found on this street, on this dirt road in Oglethorpe, Georgia. So we didn't, we didn't think anything of it. You know, our mom was very fair-skinned, but we didn't think anything of it. Uh, but then... The sheriff came to my grandmother's house, and I, it was so crazy because I remember standing on the porch and seeing Charles Cannon. He was a sheriff of Macon County, and he knew our family well because my mom and his wife did crafts 
ceramics together. But I remember standing on the porch. I remember just thinking that something is not right. And so he called all of us inside of my grandmother's living area and really just told us the news. And of course, it was, you know, heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. It was a traumatic experience, particularly for all of us, but 10 year old and a 12 year old as well. In my life, I couldn't imagine going on without my mom. You go from expecting your mom to pick you up, and she's not. At 12, I mean, 12, it's kind of like living in a fairytale world. Like, this this can't be real. This is this is not real. But that's my reality. Because, you know, as, I mean, as a, as a child, you couldn't understand. You don't understand stuff like that. You're like, what do you, what does that even mean? What do you mean your mom's not coming back? I mean, she's supposed to come back. She has to come back. You, you can't. You can't process it. And I, I'm 49, and I still haven't processed it. I don't even know. I I don't know. The next few days were, of course, a blur for the family. Per Project Cold Case, Susie's brother was the one tasked with identifying her body. Then, her funeral was held graveside at the Felton Chapel Christian Methodist Episcopal Church in Oglethorpe. Ricardo told us about Susie's service and all the people who attended. I remember the, the, the sheriff wife speaking at mom's funeral, the president of the company that she worked for, um, which she had left Southern Frozen Food and started working at Metalux. It's called Coupa Lighting now. Even the president from that company came to speak at her funeral. And uh, just to hear those great things they said about her really resonated with me as a child during that time because that's who I had come to know, someone who was a nurturer, who cared about you. When Laura was looking into the media coverage of your mom's case, she only found two little tiny articles in the local paper. Do you remember there being much media coverage? I don't remember there being much media coverage in our uh, hometown. I remember the paper. I I think I remember it being on Channel 13, but not a whole lot of coverage. I think it was WMAZ. I think it was out of Macon, Georgia, but not a whole lot of, of coverage. In the media that we could find, the Macon Telegraph articles, it was stated that an investigation had already begun into Susie's death. Per the Telegraph, Sheriff Cannon told reporters that authorities thought that Susie had been dumped not killed at the location where she'd been found, and that she'd been left there Friday, though she was not found until early Sunday morning. The sheriff told the Telegraph that her autopsy was being performed by the GBI. This was obviously before her funeral, and that, quote, lawmen had interviewed two people about the killing and followed several leads. Though just who they interviewed was never stated, we know that they certainly spoke to Adele Quinn. Whether they also interviewed the friend that she'd gone out with, we cannot verify. Actually, we can't tell you much about the investigation in the days and weeks following Susie's death, or even the months and years after. Certainly, her family expected answers. They had to put their lives back together around the hole where she had been. Adele, he had to sell the service station. He couldn't run the business and take care of his children. Their aunts and uncles and grandparents crowded in to help raise them, but they still had no resolution. 
Ricardo found himself leaning into education as a salve, probably because of the early, important support he got from a teacher. One thing that did help me was I had a fifth grade teacher who would eventually come to the house and really, and she was, you know, just, she would have me in everything and I would go stay at her house sometime. And so I started dealing with it, kind of going in with myself and kind of getting help around the age of 30 to kind of move myself beyond that. Cause I saw how even the impact of the loss of a loved one can impact relationships that you have with other people. And so definitely wanted to kind of navigate that and not be in this mode of detaching and people get close to you, you know, cause for me, relationship meant loss. Uh, I definitely didn't want to go close to it. Clarissa has felt since the beginning that the only thing that would give her peace were answers in her mother's case. And the problem was there weren't any forthcoming. As I got older, she, she kept coming to me. If, if you, if you understand what I'm saying, like in a dream and it was like, it was so real. And she'll come to me and she'll tell me that she's okay. She's fine. And then I, I took that as a sign as like, you, you, she's okay, she's fine, but I'm not. We're not. And I took it as in, I, I know because I can't let, I can't let this go just if somebody just walking this earth thinking that they committed the perfect crime, thinking that they took two kids, mother, mother from them, and they got away with it. I, I, I couldn't. I, I couldn't live. I couldn't live with that, and I and I couldn't live with the fact that my kids always asked me what was their grandmother's like, what happened to their grandmama, and why somebody did this to their grandmama. So I no, I I can't. So it has sort of become part of your life's work to keep working towards resolution in this case. Yes. It, it, I, I got to know. I have to know. I need to know. In my heart, I do believe that in due time, it will come out. It, I, I, I truly believe that it has to come out because I can't, I, I can't rest. And I, I mean, I, I can't stop. I, I won't stop until her case is solved. Until she, because I, I feel like she's not at peace. For 30-something years, she hasn't been at peace. And to have your dad pass away knowing that he was a suspect, that hurts me to the core, too. We did a DNA. He was cleared. They did a DNA through me. He was cleared. So I, I feel now he's at peace. So my mom is not at peace. And I owe her that. I really do. Adele Quinn passed away on May 15, 2019, at 67 years old. He was a deacon in his church. After the service station, he went on to work for the city of Montezuma, where he had a long career. His obituary mentions that he was, quote, preceded in death by his high school sweetheart and wife, Susie Lee Walker Quinn. Ricardo, and particularly Clarissa, 
have been the main contact people for law enforcement on the case through the years. And again, we do not have any knowledge of how the case has been investigated. Clarissa tells us that things have varied, which is what most families we work with say. When I first started this journey, I felt like they didn't care because it wasn't nobody that was important to them. And I felt like because she was just another black woman, that's what I felt. Every two or three years, the agent that's handling her case is switching out. And I have to relive, relive the situation over and over and over again. And I have to keep repeating myself, telling them what I know over and over again. So it just bringing up memories and stuff. And I just felt like that they didn't care. Like they would, like they, they're not doing everything that needs to be done to solve her case. Cause it's been 30 something years. July 27th of this, this month would be 30 something years and you haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. But now I, uh, I guess since I dove more into it and I'm more focused and adamant about solving her case and they see how persistent I am. Agent and I, we're kind of, we have like a good relationship because he'll call and he'll tell me stuff and I'll call and tell him things that I, that is new and he'll call and give me a back brief. And then back in before when I first started this journey, I didn't hear anything, but I can say he'll call. The journey that Clarissa is speaking of has to do with her own investigation into her mother's murder. She always knew that her father was not involved, and eventually DNA bore that out. We can only assume that evidence retained from the scene had been preserved well enough that a perpetrator profile was developed. So it's just a matter of matching that DNA to the right person, living or dead. And Clarissa has been trying to find that person for years. The advent of social media has made her research much, much easier. People move, after all, and tracking down folks who lived in the small towns of Montezuma and Oglethorpe 40 years ago, that is no small task. But not too long ago, she made contact with someone who, in her opinion, could definitively close her mother's case. This is the point where we need to state that there is no named person or persons of interest, not publicly, that we have been made aware of, in Susie Quinn's murder. But Clarissa said that she spoke to someone through social media who indicated that they had received a deathbed confession from Susie's killer. The person responsible, Clarissa says, provided details that were not released to the public, and that contact gave those details to Clarissa. Of course, she then in turn passed that information on to law enforcement, but as you can imagine, it was a shock to receive those messages after so long. Here's what Clarissa told us. No, I cried. I literally broke down in my office and cried. I cried because I felt robbed all over again. I felt that he got away with it. And I felt that she would never get justice. It just, it just triggered all kinds of emotions. Now that might seem like the end of the case, a conclusion, but there is another step 
that's needed. There are people alive now who could provide DNA that would prove or disprove the responsibility of this person of interest in Susie's death. And Clarissa tells us that they are aware that they could do this for her family and put Susie's case to rest. Clarissa cannot know for a fact if this information is true or untrue until further steps are taken, and that haunts her in a different kind of way. She hopes that people who could either close her mother's case or rule out the possible person of interest hear this episode and decide to make the choice to end her family's 37 years of suffering. Give me my brother closure. Give us a peace of mind. Give us closure. We've been dealing with this for 30-something years, from a child to an adult. Submit the DNA. For all we know, we could be wrong. Who knows? Just submit the DNA. And the idea of having the answer right there and you can't get it, I mean, it, it is sitting right there and it can't be revealed to you. It's frustration. It's anxiety. It's anger. Like you're being forsaken. It's there. It is like it's dangling in your face and it's playing with you. It's, it's tormenting me. We hope that the new developments that were mentioned to us by the GBI may lead to this testing. But the best and fastest way for that to happen are for the people who came in contact with Clarissa to offer to do the testing themselves. As the possible person of interest has since passed away, they cannot be convicted of a crime. This is, as Clarissa says, simply about answers. Answers that she needs to move on. As for Ricardo, he wants that for his sister more than anything. He also wants our listeners to think of his mother as he saw her, as a child. She was a person with many people who loved her. I think one thing I want folks to know is that when I think of my mother, I think of roses. She loved roses. She would plant them and she would take very good care of them. And there's always a picture when I think about her that comes into my mind all the time. And it's her. She has on this white shirt. I think it's like a black dress and this rose in her hair. And she stands beside a rose and she's just smiling and happy. And so I think about her and I think about her love that she demonstrated towards her children and to those folks that she came into contact with. And I just think about the relationship that she and I had that was understood by the two of us. And if I can go back and, and, and just relive any of those days, I would just tell her just how proud I am and was to be her son and uh, how proud I was to be under her, her care and, and, and how proud it was to see her really brave this world that she lived in and that she's missed. She's missed quite a bit. Susie Lee Walker Quinn's murder, which took place on or around July 25, 1986, in Oglethorpe, Georgia, is eminently solvable. If you live in Georgia, especially in the areas we covered in this episode, we ask you to please share her flyer available on our social media or to share this episode with your friends and on social media. We really need to get it in front 
of the right people. If you have any information that could resolve Susie's case, please call the Region 3 GBI office at 229-931-2439. Next time, a special episode. Stay tuned. If you know of a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independent show, and we appreciate listener support. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show in your podcast app of choice. If you're interested in pre-ordering my book, which covers more than a year of my life working on a Jane Doe case and the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons' cases, you can find that link in our show notes. It's called Lay Them to Rest, and it's out this October. Pre-ordering is a big factor in its success, so I appreciate it. And if you pre-order the book, there are opportunities to gain access to exclusive bonus material, like a full-length exclusive podcast episode covering a cold case briefly touched on in the book and a book release Zoom hangout with special guest Josh Hallmark. We'll be discussing our experience working on Doe cases. You can find details on getting your bonuses by following the link in the show notes. If you already pre-ordered, no problem, you are eligible too. Just scroll down the link. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon or Apple Premium. 100% of our Patreon and Apple Premium earnings go toward the Family Therapy Fund, which is supporting therapy for families who've appeared on the show. On Patreon, you'll get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. If you prefer Apple Premium, you can subscribe there as well. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional assistance by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka. This month, you can join us in supporting Season of Justice. In order to support our collaboration with Moms and Mysteries, you can share our social media posts regarding the campaign. You can join us in supporting Season of Justice with a donation by visiting givebutter.com slash fallmoms or texting Fall SOJ to 53555. This nonprofit is very personal to us. Let us explain why. So far, five families featured on our show have had their awareness campaign grants funded through Season of Justice, including billboards and similar campaigns for Chido Garibay, Leon Lorellis, Jackie Nguyen in that fan, Janice Becky LaPlante, and Matthew Grant. We have been supporting this nonprofit since November 2022 and hope you'll join us.